Galatians 4. Last week, uh, Pastor Britt titled the message, Slaves to Sons. And this week, we titled it, Sons to Slaves, the Sad Reversal. Um, so while you're turning, I'm going to go ahead and open us in prayer and just ask the Lord to bless our time together. <clears throat> Father, we're so grateful to be here today. We're so grateful that you hear our prayer. Just like David says, I love the Lord because he hears my prayer and he inclines his ear to me. Just like a father bends down and inclines and listens to the voice of his son or daughter. Lord, you know areas where we feel trapped, areas, Lord, where we need a sense of liberation and freedom. Would you speak to our hearts your truth this morning, ways that would free us, Lord. Help us to experience your presence because you're with us here today. We pray this all, Lord. In Jesus' name, that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit for your glory. Amen. Um, <clears throat> yesterday, Pastor G and I took our, our kids to the zoo. Uh, we, we, we just formed a plan. Both of us were having our, our children with us the entire day because both of our wives were going to be gone for the entire day at the conference here. And so we said, well, let's take them to the zoo. We have passes, both of us. So we went to the zoo, and it in itself was a, a journey. We got a flat tire on the 101 on the way there, and um, uh, all of us there in his lowrider on the side of the road, <laughs> all of our kids on, on the side. By the time we finally got to the zoo, it was a great time, perfect day, perfect weather. And my kids are getting to the point now where they're starting to ask the questions Dad, isn't this cruelty? Why do they have these animals caged, locked up in the zoo? And I think what's ruined it for them is that, is that horrible film, Madagascar, which has put, a, put a, this, this thought into their mind that every animal should be in the wild. Like every animal should be set free. And I even heard somebody say, wow, I can't believe they're caged up in there. We saw the baby giraffe in its cage. And, and, and I'm explaining to my daughter, I mean, ha have you ever seen Animal Planet? I mean, don't you know what happens to these giraffes? The tiger demolishes the draft, and he, at least here, he's like three or four rows down, you know. I mean, this draft gets, his life expectancy is far greater than it would be in the wild. Um, and Pastor G's, one of Pastor G's kids is explaining to us, uh, as we're looking at the draft, the new baby draft that's there, she says, uh, Daddy, did you know that one draft was killed when it, there was two drafts that were birthed? Or three. One was killed and one ran away. And there's one left. And we're looking around and on one side is the 101 freeway and the other side is the ocean. And G says, baby, where did it run away to? I, where, where do you think it ran away to? And she said, I don't know. And, and, and this whole idea that, that for, for this animal to be consumed, caught up in this, in this cage, we think it should be free because freedom means it's out in the open. It's free to run away. But for this animal, it's loved for, cared for. It's in Santa Barbara Zoo. It's not like it's in the New York City Zoo. Like it, it's, in, <laughs> it's in the most perfect elements possible. 
I think for you and I, although we find ourselves as children of God, maybe a daughter of God, a son of God, by faith, Jesus has saved us. Some of us come in here today and we ask the question, why don't I feel free? Why do I feel like I'm trapped? Why do I have a sense like I need to be set free of certain areas? Maybe for some of you, it's a certain situation that you feel the need to be free from. Maybe for some of you, you're single, and for you, freedom equals marriage. It equals relationship. For some of you, you're broke, and freedom would just mean a break, a break from constant stress of having to to figure out how you're going to pay for your finances and bills. Or maybe freedom would be that these kids that are driving you nuts or the spouse that you just can't get along with, you'd be free from that situation itself. Maybe it's not a situation that you feel tied to, that you feel trapped in. Maybe it's certain sin that you can't shake. You've adopted your parents' anger, and you can't shake it now. You have this sense of covetousness and discontentment, and you just can't have a sense of contentment. Maybe for you, you feel trapped in addiction. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe you can't stop worrying, can't stop being afraid. I just, I want to have a sense of freedom. Maybe it's not a sin that you're struggling with. Maybe it's a sin that's been committed against you. Somebody's wronged you. Maybe it's not that you can't forgive yourself. You say, I know God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Or maybe someone, because they've wronged you, you can't forgive them. And you feel trapped, and they're the ones that are controlling you. The question that you and I face is, where do we find real freedom? And in all of those situations, I understand, I don't want to trivialize any of it, because some of it needs to be wrestled through in your community, in your life groups, or with the elders, the prayer team after the service. Some of it has details that are far greater than what we understand here, and it needs to be wrestled with through the gospel and community of mature believers. But for most of us, the question, where do I find real freedom? Because I don't feel free. And that's where we get this this whole weird truth that I, I really don't understand it, but the way that the Christian freedom works is that it's a paradox. Christian freedom is a paradox. That freedom actually comes through submission. Freedom comes through submission to the right constraints. It's kind of this weird understanding. True freedom is not normally found in the places where we tend to look. And that's what this whole letter is going to address. That these people that Paul writes to as their pastor, and he writes as the tone, with the tone of a father who sees his children enslaved to sins and making choices and decisions that are so foolish, and he writes with a broken heart to them as he sees them enslaved and bound by the shackles of their own decisions. Look at verse 20. Paul says, I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone, but at this distance, I really don't know how else to help you. I don't know what else to say to you. He's 
in a sense, their spiritual father, their pastor, and he's writing to them about decisions that they've made, influences that they've had to try to free themselves of whatever feelings of bondage that they've had, and they're completely enslaving themselves. Why? Why? It's because their view of freedom is a faulty one, just like most of us. They think that freedom either comes through the absence of constraint or by adding more constraint. It's a faulty view of freedom. Christian freedom is a paradox. And in this paradox, it says that freedom comes through submission to the right constraints. But they had this entirely wrong. Look at verse 9 or verse 8. That's where we'll pick it up. As Paul addresses them first, he says, Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that don't even exist. Or verse 3 also, back up to verse 3. He says, When we were children, we were slaves to the basic principles of this world. Their view of freedom at one point before knowing Jesus was a view that said, True freedom comes as I can determine and establish my own sense of morality. I can be my own person. I can navigate my own waters. It's freedom from, freedom through the absence of submission to any constraints. I can do whatever I want. Paul said, do you remember that when you did that, you were actually slaves to, he calls it in verse 3, the elemental principles or the basic spiritual principles of this world. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. What does he mean by basic principles of this world? What does he mean that they were slaves before they became Christians, before they knew Jesus? By using the phrase elemental principles of this world, what he's re relating to is the Greek gods that, that the Gentiles would worship. So if you were a sailor, you worship the god of the ocean. If you were a partier, you worship the god named Bacchus, the wine god. If you were uh, a businessman, you worship the money god, Mammon. If uh, sexual addiction was their, your thing and, and you, uh, you craved uh, freedom through sexuality, then Aphrodite was the god that you worshipped. The Greeks and the Gentiles all had their own gods that they would worship, and these gods didn't demand any type of submission or constraint from them. You just served and sacrificed this god to this god in order to appease the god so that they would bless you in whatever lifestyle you wanted to live. Paul says, don't you remember that you were actually slaves at that point? The modern person has this view of freedom that says, I am free away from God by running away from God. And we actually, in this modern mindset, see God as a cop to run away from. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, says, freedom cannot be defined in strictly negative terms as the absence of confinement and constraint. In fact, in many cases, confinement and constraint is actually a means to liberation. In many areas of life, freedom isn't so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions, those that fit with the reality of our nature and the world produce greater freedom and power 
for our abilities and a deeper joy and fulfillment. And he gives this illustration like a fish in water. You would say, well, the fish, why has he got to be trapped in that horrible little sweaty tank? Can't you free him? Can't you at least let him on the carpet? I know that my daughter is going to do that. Whatever animal we have will be tortured for sure. Out of a sense of just let him free, dad. But if you take that fish out of his natural element, what, he was being, what he's created for to live in, the reality of its nature, it actually kills him. It actually removes his joy. You see, all through the Bible in the Old Testament, the reason the Bible says that we sin in any case is because Ultimately, not we want bad things. It's because we have taken something good and exalted it to the place of God. All of us are worshipers. We've been created in the image of God, and our hearts long for him. That's why Augustine says, you've created us, O God. Our hearts, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. See, for the modern person who sees God as a cop to be ran away from and freedom is away from all, any type of constraint, the reality is that we take, we, by fleeing from God, we don't free ourselves, we actually enslave ourselves to lesser gods who don't forgive us and who don't relent on us. That's why some of you feel so bound up that you can't forgive another person because they have robbed you of something that you feel that you had the right to have. That thing that you've exalted to the place of, I deserve to have this. You've robbed me of it. I can't forgive you. Some of you feel like you can't forgive yourselves, even though you've come to faith in Christ and you have this deep gnawing sense of guilt because uh, through unbelief of the gospel, why? It's because... There's something that you felt that you should have lived up to that you haven't attained yet, that you haven't reached, and you can't live with that. Now, we'll experience freedom to the extent that we put ourselves under the right restraints, constraints. Christian freedom is a paradox. And the basic point of idolatry is that the will never desires evil as evil, but as seeming good. That's what Richard Baxter says. So in other words, maybe you're single and you see marriage as the opportunity to be set free. And you live for that. And you're bitter and angry at God. Why, hasn't, why haven't I met the person yet? Why am I not married yet? You've lost something and now you feel you can't go on any longer because... That thing was so important, God, why, if you're, doing, if you're doing a horrible job at being God. In 1 John, we get kind of a glimpse of this too. Um, the whole book of 1 John is kind of, it's, it's, you can kind of summarize 1 John in three categories. 1 John is about living in the light. It's about knowing the Lord. And it's about love. Loving God and loving people and not loving the world. Three things. And at the very end of 1 John, how does he close his book? What's the last sentence that John gives after giving all these pastoral commands and, and, and advice? 
the last phrase of 1 John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Knowing that the true enemy of our heart is not simply a love for the world or not simply that we're not going to obey or not simply that we want bad things. The true enemy of the gospel taking root in our heart is the sense of taking something and exalting it to the place of God, idolatry. Paul says, you were bound up in idols before you knew God. You were enslaved. You ran away from any type of constraint. You ran away from God because you saw him as a cop to be ran from. What Martin Lloyd-Jones, who comments on that passage in 1 John says, is that an idol is anything that takes the place of God in my heart. It's anything that exalts itself to that place. Now, what's interesting is that they didn't only have this faulty view of freedom by seeing God as a cop to be ran away from. Like how many of us in here have been in that? We, we, a lot of us know what that feeling is like. I mean, still to this day, this sense of deep guilt plagues me every time I see a police officer behind me, <laughs> particularly in Carpinteria. I'm sorry if you're a cop in Carpinteria, but you, I'll get pulled over for anything in Carpinteria. And there's this sense of, I'm scared. I don't know that God is, is like a cop to be ran from. My freedom is, is tied to the sense of I got I to gotta flee from him. But what's really interesting is that Paul doesn't just stop there. In verse 9, he actually says, So now that you know God, or should I say know that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? Was it that they wanted to go back and, and hit the clubs and party and, and act crazy and go back into worshiping the gods that they once worshiped? Is that what's going to pull them into slavery? What is Paul referring to when he says that now you want to go back to slavery? Now you want to go back into being enslaved to the weaker, lesser non-gods? He's referring to a freedom that comes by adding more constraint. See, on, one, on the one hand, they saw God as a cop to be ran from. And now they're starting to see God as a boss to work for. He says... Verse 10, you're trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I've become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. You didn't mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought the good news to you. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me and you did not despise me or turn away, no, you took me in and cared for me as I thought, as, as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit that you felt then? 
I'm sure that you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if, I had been, if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They're trying to shut you off from me so that you'll pay attention to only them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right. But let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. You see, the enslavement that they're now entering into is not through the absence of constraint. It's by adding more constraint. It's through a very religious spirit. It's by being very moral to try to earn the favor of God. And that's what's interesting. That's what's interesting about this passage is that um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who commented on that 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 passage in 1 John about idolatry, he also says we commit idolatry when we worship any false understanding of who God is. We make God into our own image and begin to worship him in that way. We make God and we say, God is love. Well, God is love, and love is an attribute of God's personality. Love is not God. In other words, God is love and he's also just. Or we say God is just and therefore I have to work really hard. But there's no joy because we don't know God to be a loving father. And at this case, they're seeing God as a boss to be worked for. And it's completely removing their joy. And it's actually, Paul says in verse 9, enslaving them even more than when they were immoral and pursuing their other gods in the Greek culture. It's removed their joy. And it's pretty shocking. Because legalism is actually appealing for a couple of different reasons. It's appealing because it makes holiness manageable. See, having a heart that's wholly desirable, desiring the Lord Jesus Christ, where it's a relationship where I learn through both understanding his heart and through being corrected at times, that's difficult, that's hard. Relationships are hard. But rules, you give me a set of rules, I can check them off and make loopholes through them too. Like you tell me when and when I can't do certain things, I can make it happen. But marriages don't work that way. Marriages are based off of learning the heart of one another. Marriages are based off of actually being corrected at times, seeing your own faults, walking in the light, confessing sin, and actually uh, uh, helping them to reach their future glory self, not allowing them to continue in certain sins either. It involves forgiveness and repentance Legalism is desirable, it's attractive because it makes holiness manageable and it actually makes holiness achievable. Think about the the rich young ruler who said, uh, where's my neighbor, Lord? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. His first question is, well, who's my neighbor? You tell me who my neighbor is and that's the person I'll love. Everybody else I can forget. Uh, well, how far can I go and still be holy? How much can I do and still be considered spiritual? Legalism 
is appealing because it's manageable and achievable holiness. These believers in Galatia at one time had a joy that was abounding. They had a compassion that was, that was, that was boiling over to where Paul said, when I first met you, I had a disease. Some people think he had malaria that was actually gross and detestable in the sight of other people, but not for you. You had compassion because you had a sense of your own forgiveness, your own deep sinfulness before God, and a gratitude of your own, your own forgiveness before him. And it was love that was driving you, and you would have even given me your own eyes. I know you. I spent time with you. You were willing to take care of me. But not now. Not now that you're turning to legalism and you're actually enslaving yourself to more constraint and holiness by manageable rules. Not anymore. And what are the effects of that legalism? One of the effects is that they now have a loss of joy. In verse 15, we learned that. Through this passage, we also learned that one of the effects of legalism and, and adding more constraint is that they actually, they actually start to become more critical and less compassionate. I spoke to a friend of mine who's a, a church planner a couple of days ago. He's a pastor of a church. And he said, you know, the longer I do this, the more I just tell people, don't do this. Don't ever try to do this. Don't ever run. And I'm, feel, I'm, I'm in line to be the next reality church planner. And already I'm thinking, oh, I, I, okay, I, it's good to talk to you. I'll talk to you later, Okay. I want to change the subject. I want to do something else. He just says, the longer I do this, I just say, don't do this. Because the margin of error is so small. Everybody hates you. People start to gather uh, cliques and factions around their own cause. Why is that? Why is it that when we can come into churches, we can find people that are even uh, uh, less forgiving, more contentious, more jealous, why can we find our own selves being more critical? It actually amazes me that people would be so angry of their pastor, with their pastor, and with their leadership for non-gospel issues. Issues that are not central to the person of Jesus Christ and his saving work. Do you know why we become like that? And all of us get like that, right? All of us get like that. The reason why we get like that is because we begin to adopt a sense of holiness by more constraint, legalism. And now if this person isn't living up to my legalistic standards, I can't accept you. I can't forgive you. I can't follow you. And that's what Paul is communicating to them. Have I come, become an enemy to you now? You're now opening yourselves to listening to false teachers. False teachers don't come in the form only of heretical teaching. Remember what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Idolatry is when we make God into our own understanding of who he is and we worship a different form of actually, from, from who he actually is, who he presents himself to be in his word. False teaching always carries a hint of truth in it. 
false teaching always has some high view of Jesus, but your holiness comes by Jesus plus something else. And in this case, it was Jesus plus more restraint, more rules, more law. Paul says, I wish you would become like me, free from the law, verse 12, because I've become like you. They're bound into slavery right now. Where do you find your holiness coming from? Do you find it difficult to forgive people? Do you find yourself becoming more contentious, more critical, more fearful of man? What's the answer to that? The nature of Christian freedom is a paradox. It's that freedom comes through submission, not through the absence of constraint, and not by adding constraint. It's not by seeing God as a cop to run from, and it's not by seeing God as a boss to work for. What is it then? Paul actually gives us the answer, and it comes in... uh, It comes in verse 19. He says, Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they'll continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. Christian freedom is a paradox. It's a freedom that comes not by running from God, or working for him. It's by coming to him in a loving relationship. Christian freedom runs on the energy of the love of God. It runs on a new motivation of how God feels toward you. And Paul carries this heart as a pastor towards his people when he says, you are observing seasons and months and days and years for your holiness. In other words, you have this weird dualism in your life where you see things outside of church as being secular. And I can't allow the world to, I can't meet the world and I I can't redeem anything in the world. You see everything out there as being harmful to your holiness and everything in church as being sacred. You have this dualistic dualism that you're working toward now. And you're working, you, you only worship seasons and, and months and certain days of the year. Those are holy because you've lost this sense of deep relationship where before God, there's no distinction. There's no dualism between what's secular and what's sacred. All is sacred because you now have become the temple of the living God. God lives inside of you. God himself has come down in the form of a man to have a relationship with you. And Paul says, the way to experience Christian freedom comes through submission. But it's submission to right constraints, the constraint of love. You see, to you and I, what water is to that fish who's constrained in the fishbowl, that is uh, corresponding to the reality of his nature, love is the same thing to us. 
It's the corresponding uh, thing that, that makes us work, that makes us function. This is how Tim Keller finishes that paragraph in The Reason for God that I read to you earlier. He says, Love is to us what water is to fish. And one of the principles of love for a friend or romantic love is that you lose independence to attain greater intimacy with that person. If you want the freedom of love, the fulfillment, security, sense of worth that it brings, you must limit your freedom in many ways. You can't enter a deep relationship and still make unilateral decisions or allow your friend or lover no, no say in how you live your life. You see, you can continue to be free from constraint all your life, but never know what it is to enter it into a loving relationship. You can be free all your life to, from, from giving yourself, but never understand what it is to, to really give yourself for the life of another. Paul says, I'm like a father. Labor, I'm, actually, he says, I'm like a mother. I'm laboring for you like a mother. And right now, every woman in here is saying, you don't know the first thing about what labor is right now. I knew that that, I knew that, that was going to happen. When I read that verse to my wife, first thing out of her mouth, what does he know about labor? She's eight months pregnant right now, ready to pop. And so it's kind of a sore subject for us. <laughs> but the reality is true nonetheless. Paul says, it's this constraint of love that I've given myself to. I feel joy. Paul knew what it was to experience joy even while in prison. And he says, I'm laboring for you as a mother in birth pains. Why? How? Until Christ is formed in you. Literally, until Christ becomes incarnate in your life. And it's apparent that you're now being possessed and controlled by a master who loves you. And you're in submission to him. That's freedom. When you become a parent, when the language that Paul is using, your life is no longer your own, basically. Like for the rest of your life, I'm realizing that the, for the rest of my life, I will be concerned for the health, well-being, and happiness of my kids. I don't know why I'm adding more. I, I, don't, I don't understand why I'm adding more to this conflict, this drama. <laughs> but for the rest of my life, my happiness is bound there. But you know what? I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it. And for some of you, you have the sense, I want to I lose my freedom. I'm single. I'm willing to enter into that relationship with another person to give and take and lose that freedom. Some of you want to be parents and you're saying, I'm, I want to lose that freedom for the life of another. And here's what's true about the gospel. Paul uses this language in verse 12 when he says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. The gospel shows us that Jesus himself became like you in the form of a man coming down as a servant, washing the feet of dirty, smelly, sinful humanity. He became like you, and he says, so that you could become like me. 
Jesus Christ came down in the form of a man and took all of your sin upon himself on the cross. You want to talk about labor and birth pains? Jesus is there as he says, uh, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who stones the prophets and those who have been sent to her. My people, how long I've longed for you like a hen, like a mother wants to gather her children under her arms, but you weren't willing. And what you're going to experience now is enslavement by other nations, by the lovers and the false gods that you have run to for freedom. Jesus Christ, you want to talk about knowing how how to labor. It's on the cross. It's in the garden that he is, as he's about to go into into all of death and and face all of our sin uh, on, on our behalf, there's Jesus sweating drops of blood. But he knows freedom because he's in submission to the right constraint. Love constrains him. The love of his father as he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Wow. That, that was a holy moment. I, I think we actually entered into the holy of holies right there. And this is a picture of Jesus. That right constraint. I don't know if I should just bunk, bunk, bunk. <laughs> it's that. This is the picture of who Jesus is. And Paul's words give this vivid imagery of who Jesus is. So, so what? What does that mean for the rest of this week for you? When you go to work, when you're sitting at the table, when you are leaving here and you're praying about how can I be set free from the things that I have run to for actual freedom? Um. (laughs) We could pay our bills, that would bring freedom. Here's how. I'll give you two things and we'll close. Two ways that you experience freedom this week. You sacrifice, actually one way, with two implications. The way that you experience, you enter into this freedom. Because Christian freedom is a paradox. You experience freedom by submitting yourself to the right constraint. You sacrifice yourself this week in loving relationship. How do you do that? In verse 10, Paul says, or verse 9, Paul says, Now that you know God, or should I say that God knows you, why do you want to turn back again and become slaves? Paul's argument to them for entering into freedom and being set free from the enslavement of idols and religion is not try harder, do better. It's simply in verse 9. God knows you. Know God. The first thing you have to do is 
as you enter into, as you sacrifice yourself this week in loving relationship, is you have to come to the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that he knows you. He sees you as his child through faith in him, that he loves you. You come to his word and you receive that language that he says about you. Like David says, you've searched me, O God, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you know the words I'm going to say before I even say them. Your mind is consumed with me. You come to God knowing, like in verse 9 it says, God knows you. He knows your struggle. He knows your desire. He knows that longing that you have for a spouse. He knows the incredible difficulty that you have right now in your relationship. He knows that struggle that you face in the own, with the sin that you commit or the sin that's been committed against you. He knows you. And it says in New Living Translation, he's found you. But not only does it say, know God, sacrificing yourself in relationship as a child by knowing that he knows you. Sacrifice yourself in relationship as a child by knowing him. And this is where the disciplines come through. This is where it comes in where I spend time with him. I understand his heart. I ask him to speak to me. I get to know him through his word. I want to read to you um, a quote from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, of course, was the missionary to China. This is at the end of um, Lloyd-Jones' commentary in 1 John. It says that he was a great, this uh, great pioneer was fond of, and we cannot do better than follow in the steps of that saintly, mighty man. After his death, they found a sheet of paper in his Bible that was next to his nightstand. And it was obvious that he would take this same sheet of paper with the same words written on him and move it to each section every day. And this is what it said. Lord Jesus, make thyself to me a living, bright reality. More present of faith's vision keen than any outward object seen. More dear, more intimately near than even the sweetest earthly tie. I read that wrong. Let me read it again. More present of faith's vision keen than any outward object seen. More dear, more intimately nigh than even the earthly sweetest tie. Jesus has become a reality to you. That's what removes the grip of those things that hold so tightly to your heart. That's what removes the enslavement of your affections. Jesus becoming a reality to you. And you submitting yourself as a child to him for freedom. It then frees you to submit yourself as a sibling to other people. Paul says, I'm laboring for you until Christ be formed in you. He had a real sense of the future glory self of the people that he was sharing with. You're called to enter, in, enter into that labor as well. Husbands. For your wives. That's what marriage is. It's helping them reach their future glory self. Dads, as fathers, speaking words into your children's life, saying, until Christ is formed in you, I'll continue laboring. I'll pray for a vision for how Jesus is going to be formed in you. Mothers, for your children, 
friends for your other friends. And what will this look like in our lives? What could our lives look like as a result? Complete bliss. Yeah, right. Here's what our lives will look like. Probably chaos. Probably pain. Probably struggle. As you submit yourself in loving relationship to God for freedom, not through absence of constraint, not by adding constraint, but by finding the right one and submitting yourself to that, him, your life will probably be chaotic because you're now expending yourself for the benefit of other people. You're sacrificing yourself for them so that Christ would be formed in them. You're becoming like they are, Paul says. I've become like you. Become like me, free from the law. What does it mean to become like another? It means for you to enter into their struggle. It means for you to empathize and to enter into their trial. Yeah, you can do this for sure. This is why we do life group for one reason. But in your relationships, in your marriages, in your friendships, you becoming like them, you entering into their world, their struggle, so that they can experience the freedom of the law. And maybe you can't say, become like me. You feel like you, you, don't have the, you don't have the authority to say, become like me. But you know what's attractive? It's weakness being transformed. And you share that with other people. Look, here's who God is, and here's who I am. I can't believe he loves me. Your life will probably look chaotic, but it'll be control chaos controlled by your father, not as you see him as a cop to run from or a boss to work for, but a father to submit to. Controlled chaos. And your community would look different. And it would, we'd have more courage and more humility. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you've become like us so that we could become like you. We want to submit our lives to you. We want to obey you, God, which is the part of a bond slave, a bond servant, so that you would break the chains that hold us. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.